The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 370. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. And, of course, you can purchase one of my courses there. I've got 12 available for sale, so you can get a great course, and you can support this podcast, keep it free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can order a book plate if you want my autograph of one of my books. You can purchase one of my books. I've got a new book out, Southern Scribblings, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. So I've got a lot of great stuff that you can purchase to keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, a great website, great educational website. And, of course, you also help support the show by using my affiliate link. So it's a win-win. You get all kinds of cool stuff in any of these things. And always remember to share this podcast on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcast, do whatever you can to get people thinking locally and acting locally. That's how we move forward in this great big monster of a nasty situation that we have in America with extreme centralization. I mean, this is what we're looking at. This is what we need to be doing. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And a listener asked if I would talk about James Wilson's Statehouse Yard speech. One of the most important speeches ever delivered in the period leading up to ratification of the uh, U.S. Constitution. In fact, it's the speech that everyone that opposed the document, particularly George Mason, whose uh, objections to the Constitution were the most famous, uh, at least initially, based their objections on. I mean, they, they, they had Wilson's Statehouse Yard speech, and then they built their objections off of that. Well... Michael Bolden at the Tenth Amendment Center covered it the other day, so uh, I think that he did a great job with it, and I think you should go out and listen to that particular episode. So I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do, though, is focus on one of the first defenses of the Constitution written after the document was signed. In fact, it appeared uh, less than two weeks after the Constitution was signed in September of 1787, and it comes from the pen of Tench Cox. Now, Tench Cox is not a household name. Tench Cox uh, was a fairly significant man in Pennsylvania. Uh, in fact, he had uh, uh, he was appointed by George Washington to a, a, a legal position there in Pennsylvania. He was an important guy, and he was a firm supporter of the Constitution. In fact, he wrote a number of essays in defense of the document that nobody really knows anything about. But you should, because Tench Cox is making some pretty salient points about the Constitution, and he provides an originalist perspective on federalism, which is why you should read his work. But I'm not going to focus on those essays. I'm going to focus on the very first essay he wrote. And it's, it's important to note what he talks about in this very first essay. 
because this is 2020 and it's an election year. In fact, what he writes about in this first essay is the power of the presidency. There were two things that opponents of the document worried about above all others. One was that the states would be crushed and destroyed, and you find that when James Wilson argues in the very first part of his State House Yard speech that federalism is the key to understanding the Constitution, that the central authority is limited by the document itself. So everyone knew that the arguments against the Constitution were based on a fear that civil liberties would be trampled, that the states would be trampled, that somehow were centralizing power. They wanted to reassure those who were against it or who were waffling. That's, I mean, that's what these things, it's like the, the moderate voters. Oh, who are we going to capture? They wanted to ensure that these moderate voters, those on the fence, would know that we're not going to create a centralized despotism here. We're not going to create a powerful central government that's going to run over your liberties or destroy the, the relationship between the states and the federal government or the powers of the states themselves. That was very important. In fact, I've pointed out in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution that the Tenth Amendment was actually the first on many lists that were presented to James Madison. So federalism was a great fear. But the other fear was that we're going to create a monarchy. And so these two things, the powers of the president and the presidency itself and the, uh, the federal relationship of the states vis-a-vis -vis the general government and vis-a-vis -vis each other, those are the most important arguments that people had to make to get those who were not necessarily on board with the Constitution to support the document. 2020 is an election year, and it's interesting to go back and look at what Cox has to say about the presidency in September of 1787. What was he saying about the presidency then? I mean, look, the ink had barely dried on the document, and he's already arguing we need to support this Constitution because, look, I know you all are saying that there's going to be this king, but it's not because of these things. And so I think it's interesting to look at what he said and see where we've gone with that. In America, so we're gonna, we're going to, um, or I'm going to focus on this very first essay, September 26th, 1787. Cox was writing as an American citizen. This was the first, the first major essay in defense of the Constitution, published after the document was signed in Philadelphia in 1787. Now, Cox, of course, was not at the Philadelphia Convention, but. He's living in Philadelphia, so he's aware of what's in the document very quickly after it's signed and goes to the states for ratification. This is also why you know, James Wilson made his speech in October, October 6, 1787, because he was also from Pennsylvania, so he knew it. So I'm going to read this essay. It's not long, but it's interesting. It's interesting because of the way that he frames the Constitution in relation to the rights and powers of Englishmen, in particular the king. That was the comparison that people often made. What is the king compared to the American president as designed in the Constitution? Hamilton had, of course, a very famous essay on this, Federalist Number 69, but he wasn't making, I mean, this is the, this is the funny thing about the Federalist essays. Hamilton wasn't making any point that had been made by somebody else earlier on. It's just, oh my gosh, Hamilton's so brilliant. Hamilton's so brilliant. 
other people were saying the th same things, and in many cases earlier than Hamilton had said them. All right, so Cox begins, It is impossible for an honest and feeling mind of any nation or country whatever to be insensible to the present circumstances of America. Were I an East Indian or a Turk, I should consider this singular situation of a parent and of my fellow creatures as most curious and interesting. Intimately connected with a country as a citizen of the Union, I confess it entirely engrosses my mind and feelings. To take a proper view of the ground on which we stand, it may be necessary to recollect the manner in which the United States was originally settled, the United States were originally settled, so the United States in plural, and established. Cox, of course, is a firm believer in federalism. He says as much in other essays later on. But he calls the United States plural. The United States were, not the United States was, but the United States were. Very key to understand it. He's already saying what we have is a federal republic here. Want of charity in the religious systems of Europe and, and of justice in their political governments were the principal moving causes which drove the immigrants of various countries to the American continent. The Congregationalists, Quakers, Presbyterians, and other British dissenters, the Catholics of England and Ireland, and the Huguenots of France, the German Lutherans, Calvinists, and Moravians, with several other societies, established themselves in the different colonies, thereby laying the ground of that Catholicism and ecclesiastical affairs which has been observable since the late Re Revolution. Religious liberty naturally promotes corresponding dispositions in manners, matters of government. The Constitution of England, as it stood on paper, was one of the freest at the time existing in the world, and the American colonies considered themselves as entitled to the fullest enjoyment of it. Thus, when the ill-judged discussions of later times in England brought into question the rights of this country, as it stood connected with the British crown, we were found more strongly impressed with their importance and accurately acquainted with their extent than the wisest and most learned of our brethren beyond the Atlantic. When the greatest names in Parliament insisted on the power of that body over the commerce of the colonies, and even the right to bind us in all cases whatsoever, America, seeing that it was only another form of tyranny, insisted upon the immutable truth that taxation and representation are inseparable, and while a desire of harmony and other considerations induced her into acquiescence in the commercial reg regulations of Great Britain, it was done from the declared necessity of the case and with a cautious, full, and absolute saving of our voluntary suspended rights. The Parliament was preserving, persevering, I'm sorry, and America continued till firm till hostilities and open war commenced, and finally the late revolution closed the contest forever. It's a very short and interesting paragraph there when it comes to the American war for independence. So he lists you know, religious liberty and and uh, as the primary mover for people coming to the, to the Americas. I think that you can make a case that wasn't so for many. But certainly in Pennsylvania it was. I mean, he, he mentions uh, a number of the German settlers, which many of them settled in Pennsylvania. And, of course, also people like the Quakers, who were dominant in this portion of uh, the colonies for a long period of time. And he says, look, I mean, we, were, we loved the British Constitution. We loved it. But the Parliament was going to persevere in uh, abridging our rights as Englishmen, so we had to get rid of it. We had to break free from that. So he continues, "'Tis evident from this short detail and the reflections which arose from it that the quarrel between the United States and the Parliament of Great Britain did not arise so much from objections to the form of government, though undoubtedly a better one by far is now within our reach, as from a difference connecting certain important rights resulting from the essential principles of liberty, 
which the Constitution reserved to all the subjects actually residing within the realm. It was not asserted by America that the people of the island of Great Britain were slaves, but that we, though possessed absolutely with the same rights, were, now, were not admitted to enjoy an equal degree of freedom. This is an important point. He's saying, look, we had a free constitution, but we didn't have those same freedoms here in, in the North American colonies. We just didn't have it. So we, we fought for it, and this is where we are. And we have the chance to create a better government, the U.S. Constitution, a better central authority. And he's going to make a case for the presidency. So he continues, when the Declaration of Independence completed the separation between the two countries, new governments were necessarily established. Many circumstances led to the adoption of the Republican form, among which was the predilection of the people. In devising the frames of government, it may have been difficult to avoid extreme opposites to the voices of that we had just rejected. Nevertheless, many of the state constitutions we have chosen are truly excellent. Our misfortunes have been that in the first instance, we adopted no national government at all, but were kept together by common danger only. And then the confusions of a civil war, we framed a federal constitution now universally admitted to be inadequate to the preservation of liberty, property, and the union. The question is not then how far our state constitutions are good or otherwise. The object of our wishes is to amend and supply the evident and allowed errors and defects, defects of the federal government. Now, consider that he says, look, we didn't create a national government, we created a federal government, and we're going to keep a federal government because he says we're going to solve the defects and the errors of the federal government. He doesn't say we're going to create a national government, though. We're going to solve the defects and errors of the federal government. But what are the, what are the principal objects of this government? To protect liberty, property, and the union. Liberty, property, and the union. Now, he doesn't, I mean, that, that, those first two things, liberty and property, that was essential to Tenshkots. We had to protect our property. We had to protect our liberty. These are things that are essential. And the union. This gets into a very interesting question. Uh, Elizabeth Varon actually wrote a book. I'm not a big fan of Varon in some ways, but she points out in her, in her book on union how important this idea was to the founding generation and all throughout American history, how this the fear of breakup of the Union led them to do things at times. They all wanted to keep the Union together, but when you say that, what are they recognizing? That a breakup of the Union is entirely possible and legal. They just didn't want it to happen. So he says, let us compare it with the so much boasted British form of government and see how much more it favors the people and how completely it secures their rights, remembering at the same time that we did not dissolve our connection with that country so much on account of its constitution as the, preserva per, I'm sorry, as the perversion and maladministration of it. So we like the constitution, but it was perverted and maladministered. So this is why we left it. So let's just, we didn't want to reject it outright. We want to keep the Anglo-American traditions together but let's see how this new constitution we're creating can do that. In the first place, let's look at the, at the nature and powers of the head of that country and those of the ostensible head of our own. So now he's going to compare the, the king to the president. And this is where I like this particular essay. Again, September 26, 1787. The British king is the great bishop or supreme head of an established church with an immense patronage annexed 
In this capacity, he commands a number of votes in the House of Lords by creating bishops, who besides their great incomes have voted in that assembly and are judges in the last resort. They also have also many honorable and lucrative places to bestow, and thus from their wealth, learning, dignities, powers, and patronage give a great luster and enormous influence to the crown. So they have an oligarchy in England that's actually helped, is propped up by the king himself because of the amount of patronage and other things. Now, think about what's going on in the United States now. There's a tremendous amount of patronage that goes into the presidency. This is something that was developed over time and why we had civil service reform. But the idea was not to have the, the president have the powers of a king in this particular way. In fact, Cox argues this cannot be the case. He says, in America, our president will not only be without, without these influencing advantages, but they will be in the possession of the people at large to strengthen their hands in the event of a contest with him. So the people hold these powers. All religious funds, honors, and powers are in the gift of numberless, unconnected, disunited, and contending corporations, wherein the principle of perfect equality universally prevails. In short, danger from ecclesiastical tyranny, that long-standing and still remaining curse of the people, that sacrilegious engine of royal power in some countries, can be feared by no man in the United States. So the president is not the head of a church. This is, this is what was meant by separation of church and state. There was no established church in America. Didn't mean the president wasn't going to be religious. Didn't mean the president wasn't going to go to church or the president wasn't going to be a God-fearing man. But it meant that the president was not going to be the head of any American church to dispense patronage and other things as, as he saw fit. That wasn't going to happen. So Cox points this out. This is a good thing for America. He says, in Britain, their king is for life. In America, our president will always be one of the people at the end of four years. In that country, the king is hereditary and may be an idiot, a knave, or a tyrant by nature, or ignorant from neglect of his education, yet cannot be removed, for he can do no wrong. In America, as the president is to be one of the people at the end of his short term, so will he and his fellow citizens remember that he was originally one of the people and that he is created by their breath. Now, think about this for a second and what we do. This is, I mean, this is coming in 1787. When Joe Biden stands on the stage, he's addressed as Mr. Vice President. He's not Vice President, he's Joe Biden. When Barack Obama is now, it's, it's uh, Mr. President Obama. No, it's Barack Obama, Citizen Obama, George W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, all these people that are still living, Bill Clinton. They're just Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter. That's all they are. They're not anything else. But yet what we've done in America has created an elected monarchy. And this is what the opponents of the document said was going to happen. It has happened, but Tench Cox is saying, you don't need to fear this because it's not going to happen. So people bought it. People bought it. We know the, that the opponents of the document were prescient in what was going to happen. But at the end of the day, we also know that uh, the arguments in favor of the Constitution were saying that we weren't going to have an elected president, an elected king. I mean, it wasn't going to happen. We have sort checks on this. So one thing we could do to make ourselves a lot better in this regard was to stop calling these morons who are now in public and not in public life anymore, who are now private citizens, president or vice president. They're not anything like that. Or stop calling someone who is no longer a senator a senator 
or a representative a representative. They're not that anymore. They're just citizen. It's one of the great things we could do. As soon as they leave public office, they're no longer citizen, citizen or representative. They're just Barack Obama. That's it. It's no longer First Lady Michelle Obama. She's just Michelle Obama. We need to stop. Americans love royalty. We just don't say it. So this is one thing we could do if you want to stop some of the madness that we're seeing. Stop addressing these people this way. Of course, we're not going to. The, the media won't do that. And uh, well, you have you have to address me as this. You know, I know people that have advanced degrees. I mean, this is this is all over America in many ways. People that have advanced degrees. If they don't get called by doctor, well, they're very upset. Ah, my title is doctor. I could care less what you call me. Uh, I mean, this is the thing. We get hung up on these titles. Cox continues further, he cannot be an idiot, probably not a knave or a tyrant. For those whom nature makes so, discover it before the age of 35, until which the period he cannot be elected. It appears we have not admitted that he can do no wrong, but have rather presupposed he may and will sometimes do wrong by providing for his impeachment, his trial, and his peaceable and complete removal. Now, you're comparing this with the king, which you can't do that. Now, we know that we've had idiots as presidents. Right, we know we've had we've had tyrants as presidents. We know that people will vote them in, but T Cox is actually arguing for a pretty broad use of impeachment powers here, and that's something I brought up in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. By the way, I still am running that sale on American constitutions. If you use the coupon code RBG, you still get that class for thirty-five percent off. And I go through all this stuff in that class. I go through James Wilson. I talk about all this. RBG. Still use it. 35% off on that class. In England, the king has a power to create members of the upper house who are judges in the highest court as well as legislators. Our president can only make member cannot only not only cannot make members of the upper house by their but their creation like his own is by the people through the representatives. And a member of assembly may and will be as certainly dismissed at the end of the year for electing a weak or wicked senator as for any other blunder or misconduct. So here he's saying, look, I mean, your state legislators can remove these people from the Senate. This is tying in. He's saying it's by the people through the representatives. But of course, the states are, are part of this process as well. I love this next paragraph. Because it gets into this thing, what the president, I mean, what's your plan for this? What's your plan for that? Well, Cox addresses that. He says, the king of England has legislative power, while our president can only use it when the other servants of the people are divided. So he has no legislative power otherwise. But in all great cases affecting the national interest or safety, his modified and restrained power must give way to the sense of two-thirds of the legislature. In fact, it amounts to no more than a serious duty imposed upon him to request both houses to reconsider any matter on which he entertains doubts or feels apprehensions. And here the people have a strong hold upon him for, from his sole and personal responsibility. So the president doesn't have any legislative power unless it's, you, you need to look at this again, but no legislative power. 
in reality. But yet we ask the president, what is going to be your plan? What's your, what's your, what do you need? I mean, the Constitution was argued the president did not have very much legislative power at all, if any. The president of the upper house of the chancellor in England is appointed by the king, while our vice president, who is chosen by the people through the electors in the Senate, is not at all dependent on the president, but may exercise equal powers on some occasions. Well, this is when we had the two selected differently. Now we, oh, this is, we're in the Harris administration, the Harris-Biden administration. <laughs> I mean, who are we really electing in that particular case? Harris or Biden? We all know the answer to that. You all know what, what, what's going on here. I mean, unless you're a, a, an African-American woman who has to stock shelves, as Joe Biden says, the only reason he was able to eat is because we have, we have black women out there stocking shelves. I mean, look, if, if Donald Trump said something about that, it would have been front-page news. Joe Biden says it, it's, it's just, oh, no, it's just Joe saying, just Joe being Joe. Why is it that anyone would vote for that? I mean, well, I know why. Because it's about power. They don't really care about being hypocritical. It's all about power. They don't care who gets it. They don't care how they get it. They just want it. But the, the, the vice president had separate powers. In all royal governments, a helpless infant or an inexperienced youth may wear the crown. Our president must be matured by the experience of years, and being born among us, his character at 35 must be fully understood. Wisdom, virtue, and, act, and active quantities, qualities of mind and body can alone make him the first servant of a free and enlightened people. Now, you would question this. I mean, we're looking at an election where we have two people that, eh, may not have all these, meet all these uh, qualities, but they are older. And this is one thing that's been, why do we elect all these old people to be president? Well, because we think somebody that's older has more wisdom on some things. Not always the case, but we think they do. And if they're over 35, well, maybe we can see their character over time and how, what they really are. And we should look at that more carefully. Our president will fall very far short, indeed, of any prince in his annual income which will not be hereditary, but the absolute allowance of the people passing through the hands of other servants from year to year as it becomes necessary. Now, we do give the president a hereditary annual income. I mean, once you're president, you've got this pension for the rest of your life, secret service, everything else. So the president has been elevated to, a, to a, a, some type of prince. That's why we still call him Mr. President. It's just so stupid. But when we were arguing for the Constitution, this was not the case. In fact, I mean, why is it that we have Joe Biden, who's been a public servant almost his entire life, as a multimillionaire? Why is that? How did Barack Obama become close to a billionaire off of public service? Because this is what's happened. It's exactly what's happened. We should question that. Why is it people spend uh, millions and millions of dollars to get power? What are they going to gain from it? We should question that, too. Cox continues, there will, be no, there will be no burdens on the nation to provide for his heir or other branches of his family. Well, we know this isn't the truth. It is probably from the state of property in America and other circumstances that many citizens will exceed him in showing expense. Well, that is true. Those dazzling trappings of kingly rank and power. He will have no authority to make a treaty without two-thirds of the Senate. We know this isn't true because the president doesn't end around out all the time. Nor can he appoint ambassadors or other great officers without their approbation, which will remove the idea of patronage and influence and of personal obligation and dependence. 
The appointment of even the inferior officers may be taken out of his hands by an act of Congress at any time. He can create no nobility or titles of honor, nor take away offices during good behavior. His person is not so much protected as that of a member of the House of Representatives, for he may proceed against for he may be proceeded against like any other man in the ordinary course of law. He appoints no officer of, separate, of the separate states. He will have no influence from placement in the legislature, nor can he prolong or dissolve it. I'm sorry, prorogue or dissolve it, excuse me. He will have no power of the treasures of the states. And lastly, as he is created through the electors by the people at large, he must ever look up to their, to their support of his creators. From such a servant with powers so limited and transitory, there can be no danger, especially when we consider the solid foundations on which our national liberties are immovably fixed by the other provisions of this excellent Constitution. Whatever of dignity or authority he possesses is a delegated part of their majesty and their political omnipotence, transiently vested in him by the people themselves for their own happiness. Now, we know this last paragraph is just not true. I mean... The president has done an end around. We, we've got we've got executive government in America. Either we don't have legislative government anymore. We have executive or judicial government in America. We know all this is true. We know that Cox was saying these things to persuade people, but we know the presidency has grown into something that he's saying won't happen. It's interesting how he cites the electors or the voice of the people and not the states. The electors, of course, are divvied up by state. But still, it was seen that the people are voting for these electors. Regardless, I thought this was an interesting essay, an interesting topic, because we are getting to this election in less than a month. And it's important to think about what the founding generation said about the powers of the presidency. It's why I wrote Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. It's why I, I spent a lot of time on that topic. I mean, I've, I've got so many things at McClanahan Academy that, that dive into this as well. You need to take all those courses. Uh, you would be so much better, a uh, better informed voter in thinking about what we're going to do if you had that background. Uh, and I mean, I hope you, you take part in them. Uh, but regardless, uh, Tenge Cox nailed it here. I mean, the presidency is not supposed to be what it is today. We know has become this because of Congress punting its responsibilities and the states being emasculated. This is essentially what's happened in America. All right. That does it for the Brian McClanahan Show for today. I'll see you tomorrow. See you for the next one. (laughs) 